Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 40, then two will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant? whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master's delaying his coming, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, and at an hour that he's not aware of, and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Chapter 24 has placed us on the last day's highway. And what have we seen? Remember Jesus said, expect times of apostasy in verses 4 and 5 and 11. Expect false teachers leading gullible people astray. There will be false Christs and false messiahs. We were warned that there was a coming times of anarchy with wars and rumors of wars in verses 6 through 8. We were warned of increasing apathy as the love of many grow cold towards God and then towards each other in verses 12 and 13. Affliction with saints being hated and hunted and martyred in verses 9 through 10. And in spite of all of these things, the gospel would be preached to the nations in verse 14. Jesus encouraged the disciples to read and understand the book of Daniel, taking careful note of something that he called the abomination which makes desolate in verse 15. There were warnings for the inhabitants of Judea to flee for safety. Jesus describes increased wickedness against God, that there would be a series of atmospheric and geological and environmental catastrophes. He describes it with the sun being darkened, the moon refusing to give its light, the stars falling from the heaven, the powers of heaven itself shaken as the fabric of reality itself begins to unfold. The reoccurring theme, Jesus will return. Jesus is coming back. His coming is certain and his coming is secret. But for many, 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 perhaps for most, the second coming of Jesus will come as a complete surprise. Unbelievably, Many people will try to explain away the seasons, the signs, the judgments, and they will come to a different conclusion. They will come to the conclusion that Jesus really isn't coming back. So Jesus gives a bold challenge. Be watchful. Be alert. Be ready. Be faithful. I want you to think about that for just a moment. You are being given permission to be watchful, to be alert, to be ready, to be faithful. Jesus has already given his disciples the reason for this vigilance. Remember, he has said, no one knows when Christ will come in verse 36. He repeats it in verse 42. Jesus gave a reason, think, no one knows. And then he gives a reminder, 
citing the illustration of Noah's flood in verses 37 through 39, now Jesus illustrates the reactions of people, and it's both informative and inspiring. He basically says, a wise servant watches and is rewarded, in verses 43 through 47, a wicked servant ignores the warning and is condemned in verses 48 through 51. So again, he's offering information and inspiration in what sense? To the generation alive in the last days, Jesus says, be watchful, be ready, be faithful. Why? Because the prophecies provided aren't simply provided in order to satisfy your curiosity. Prophecy must of necessity serve another purpose. It has to motivate the, the, the believer to godly living. It must warn and motivate. Jesus is coming back. Think carefully. If I were to put it in the simplest terms possible, he will return. To reward the righteous. To punish the wicked. This is why again he reiterates. Be alert. Look what it says in verse 40. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. What's interesting about the passage is. These are people going about their regular business. Men working in the field, one taken, one left. Women grinding at the mill, one taken and one left. In what sense? I want you to just think for just a moment. These people aren't fasting and praying. They're not wearing white ascension robes. It is business as usual. Now, the passage itself is filled with controversy. Is this a reference to the rapture of the church spoken about by Paul, the apostle, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, where he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, but there's going to come a time when a final generation is going to be caught up in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Or is this something else? Remember, if we look back at verse 39, the illustration that Jesus gives there are scoffers, unbelievers in Noah's day taken in a catastrophe, in a global flood. It would seem that Jesus is still talking about judgment during the time of great tribulation. So I believe the passage can mean only one of two things. Number one, when Jesus returns at his second coming... One is taken to judgment. The other is left to rule and reign with him in his new kingdom. The context seems to support that view. Bible teachers like John MacArthur hold this position. Dr. MacArthur would argue that the rapture of the church takes place some seven years prior to the second coming of Christ. But remember, the context and the people who are being warned are largely Jewish people. Number two, some Bible teachers argue that Jesus is indeed speaking of the rapture in this passage. Well, does the text or the context offer us insight on how best to understand and interpret the passage? I think that the answer is yes. The thing that I want to draw your attention to in verse 40 and verse 41 is the word taken. Look at it closely. But before, in verse 39, you'll remember, and Jesus said when he was giving the illustration of Noah, and did not know until the flood came and took them. The word in verse 39 is the Greek word aero or aero. It, it, it was a word that meant to lift or to carry or to take away. It translates 
and did not know until the flood came and Iro took them all away. So will also the coming of the Son of Man be. In verse 40 and 41, the Greek word for taken is a different word. It's, it's a specific word. It, it translates the word para lombanomi. It's a Greek verb. In Matthew's gospel, it's used in the context when the angel of the Lord tells Joseph to take Mary as his wife. Don't be afraid, the angel said. Take Mary as your bride. Same word, Matthew 1.27. In Matthew 17.1, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up with him to the Mount of Transfiguration. Same word. In John 14.3, Jesus said, I will come again and take you to myself. Same word. That where I am, you will be also. My friend John Corson sees a pattern. He sees the pattern of taking a bride, the taking of the disciples in the kingdom, the taking up to heaven. But what I would point out is the exact same word is also used to refer to soldiers taking Jesus away to be crucified. Whatever else it means, there's a taking away to reward. And there's a taking away to judgment. The principle, no matter what, is some will be taken for reward. Some will be taken to to judgment. So which is it? Is it Jesus at his second coming? Is it Jesus in the rapture? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know. It means one of those two things. Peter ends his famous sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. He says that the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of that great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In Peter's sermon, it would appear that even hardcore skeptics and critics will have to reconcile their criticism and their unbelief when Jesus shows up. I have friends who have said, most particularly Jewish friends. Well, when Jesus shows up and I discover that he's the Messiah, I guess I'll just have to say, sorry. But I suspect that there's going to require something way more than just sorry. Or I told you so. John MacArthur writes, quote, In that final moment, when the king comes to establish his kingdom... Some people will turn to Christ in sincere faith and be redeemed. They will be set apart as the Lord's sheep by the angels and will inherit the kingdom prepared for them, unquote. I hope he's right. I hope he's right. I hope that at that moment, there still won't be people who will go, who cares? Guess what? Everything that the Bible said has now come past. It's come true, but I don't care and I won't believe. You know what's interesting to me? For some people, it doesn't matter how much evidence you provide that Jesus is going to return. But look what it says in verse 42. Watch therefore. That seems to be the point. No matter what the meaning is in the earlier verse, whether it's the second coming or whether it's the rapture, whatever conclusion you draw about the previous passage, both require watchfulness. The word could be translated, you should be on the alert. Watch, by the way, is in the present imperative tense in the original language, which speaks of a continual expectancy. This is something that is continual. The idea being watch all the time. Be alert all the time. Look up all the time. 
The concept of watch has its origins in the Old Testament. The prophet Malachi talked of believers living in the last days, discussing among themselves the possibility of encountering angels or spirit beings who might accidentally put the believer in the wrong pile with the unbeliever. In the Old Testament, they were wondering and arguing, well, what if the end comes and the angels begin to separate the righteous from the unrighteous and you find yourself in the wrong pile? Malachi informs them in Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, as he speaks, quote, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name, verse 17 of Malachi. Then shall, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I will make them my jewels. I will spare them as a man who spares his own sir, son who serves him. Verse 18, then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve God. You should be glad that the person who's making the decision between those who serve the Lord and those who don't serve the Lord, those who have a right relationship and those who do not have a right relationship is the Lord Jesus himself. Guess who isn't the one who makes the decision? You. Well, I want to be in that pile. Well, you can't be in that pile unless you have a right relationship with God in Christ. Unless you've come to know him. Whatever else the passage means, it means that Jesus is the Lord. Is he your Lord? Because the point of the passage in Malachi and throughout the New Testament is that the Lord knows his own. The Lord knows the truth about your heart and your circumstances. And so be on the alert. We're secure in Christ. When will Jesus come? Whenever it is, it's when we least expect his coming. I read the story this week of a lady in Czechoslovakia who was in profound, deep despair. She discovered that her husband had been unfaithful to her in the marriage. And the husband was getting ready to announce that he was getting ready to leave her for another woman. Heartbroken, she stood on the fifth floor of a balcony wondering whether she should kill him when he got home or kill herself by jumping off the balcony. She decided to jump. Little did she know at the moment that she decided to hurl herself to her death, her husband was walking on the sidewalk directly below her. She jumped and landed right on top of her husband. He died. She lived. Look up. You never know who's going to drop in. Be ready, it says in verses 43 and 44. Look what it says. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Jesus gives the illustration of a faithful servant guarding his household from burglars. I don't know if you've ever had your home or your apartment broken into, but few things are more intimidating and terrifying knowing that someone has come into your home and gone through your personal effects. It's, it's a profound violation. Jesus says, know this. Or you can be sure of this. Only an insane burglar would come if he knew that the household was being guarded. No sane thief decides to rob the place when everyone is looking. The generation living in the last day doesn't know when Jesus returns. None of us can be sure when Jesus will come. 
either in the rapture or in death. And I want to remind you of something. Jesus isn't comparing himself to a thief in character, but rather in stealthiness and in and the unexpected arrival. The New Testament makes repeated statements that he's coming like a thief in Luke 12, 35, verse 40. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, Paul writes, 2 Peter 3, 10, like a thief in the night, just like lightning in the sky, Jesus returns. In, an, in at least one sense, the coming of the Lord will be like a thief. For the ungodly, for the unbeliever, for the make-believer, for the wicked, Jesus will come and take everything away from you in a single moment of judgment. The unbeliever, the make-believer, the, the skeptic, the critic, the doubter. When Jesus comes and you don't know him and you don't love him and you won't serve him. Everything that you used to have, you will no longer have. You won't have your home. You won't have your job. You won't have your bank account. You won't have whatever thing that you deem precious. It will all be gone. It will all be gone. Whatever it is that you love, whatever stuff that you have... Whatever it is that you mark your life by, it will all be gone. Everything you loved, everything you cherished, everything you fought for, everything you slaved for, everything that you cried for, it'll be gone. And you'll never get it back. All the stinking stuff will be gone. Everything that you loved more than Jesus. Are you ready for Jesus? The simple parable is a call not just for constant vigilance on the part of the believer, but it is supposed to motivate the unbeliever and the skeptic and the make-believer to reconsider their position. In verse 44, look what it says. You be ready. Ready in what way? Well, in the most fundamental way. In the most simple way. If you're not saved, you're not ready. If you've never repented of your sin, if you've never trusted Jesus, you're not ready. If you're living your life as if what the Bible says is untrue, you're not ready. If you are living your life in the constant expectation that you can always postpone serving him, you're not ready. What is the minimum preparation? The minimum preparation is that you have to be ready to meet Jesus. You have to trust him as Savior. If you don't trust him as Savior, you will meet him as your judge. I don't rarely do this, but this is so important, you can't even wait till the end of the sermon. You need to do it now. If I really believe what I've been saying that I believe, that Jesus could come back at any moment, at any moment, at any moment, then you have to be ready now. You can't wait five minutes from now. You can't even wait till the end of the sermon. You need to pray to receive Christ now. You need to trust him now. You need to turn from your sin now. You need to, in the quietness of your own heart, you, you need to be able to say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I want to know you. I want to be forgiven of my sin. I want to experience grace and mercy and hope. And I need to do it now. That's the minimum preparation. Turn from your sin. Turn to the Savior. Because the unbeliever and the make-believer only have the fearful expectation of judgment and damnation. Once again, Jesus says, The Son of Man is coming at an hour that you don't expect. Jesus will come in glory. He will come in judgment. And he will come in total surprise. Will you meet him in glory? Or will you meet him in shame? The faithful and obedient servant still runs the risk of surprise. 
I'm going to repeat that. The faithful and obedient servant still runs the risk of surprise. How do I know that? Two are in the field. Two are at the grinding. It's business as usual. Is it okay to be doing the dishes when Jesus comes? Is it okay to be changing a diaper when Jesus comes? Is it okay to be at your job when Jesus comes? Is it okay for you to be faithful in whatever it is that God has called you to? Yes, Luke gives another warning of Jesus in in chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. Luke, speaking of Jesus, writes, quote, Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding. And when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. It's okay for you to be about your father's business when Jesus shows up. Be watchful and be faithful. Look what it says in verse 45. Who then is a faithful and wise servant? Indeed. Who is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? In other words, who's the faithful servant that Jesus entrusts To do the work that you've been called to do. In the ancient world, it wasn't uncommon for masters to place one servant in charge of all of the household affairs. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? It must mean, in part, the audience. Carefully. Listen. It's Matthew 24. At the beginning of the chapter, who is Jesus speaking to? The disciples, the apostles. They've asked him, when are you coming? He's talking to them. I suspect that the faithful and wise servant, in part, must mean the apostles of Jesus who are entrusted with all that Jesus would give them. In other words, Jesus is going to give to the apostles the gospel the message of hope. He is going to give to them everything that they need in order to do their job. It's the same thing that I've tried to do with you. You come here Sunday after Sunday, and I'm grateful for that. But whatever it is that God's called you to do, that he's entrusted with you to do, it's going to require you to know that, to search that, to evaluate your heart, and to come to grips with whatever it is that God's called you to do. The apostles are entrusted with unprecedented authority, and they are given faithful provision and stewardship of what's been entrusted to them. The apostles exercise leadership, authority, servant leadership. Part of the point I think that Jesus is giving is that these apostles and disciples were to be found faithful in executing Christ's commands, his teachings, his doctrines, everything that the church is supposed to do. We're supposed to love the Lord. We're supposed to glorify God. We're supposed to worship God. We're supposed to disciple the saints. We're supposed to reach the lost. We're supposed to encourage one another in our mutual faith. We are to be faithfully found exercising and executing Christ's commands. That's what you're supposed to do. Billy Graham said, quote, if God has given you more than your neighbors, dedicate it to Christ and realize that you're only a steward of that which God has given you. Someday you will have to give an account for every penny you spent. You've been entrusted. You've been given 
some sort of resource, grace, mercy, spiritual gift, everything that has been given to you and you've been entrusted with, you have to now be found faithful in that which Jesus himself has given you. In verse 46, it says, Blessed, oh, how happy is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find him doing. What's God called you to do? Has he called you to be faithful to your wife and your husband? Has he called you to instruct your children? Has he called you to love people and pray for them and encourage them? What is it that God has called you to do? Be found faithful. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? It's the one found not just knowing God's will, but doing God's will. It's time. It's time to do the work of the Lord. It's time to tell people about Jesus. It's time for you to stop making excuses of why you can't do what God has clearly called you to do. The one found doing God's will and the specific task assigned by the master. Are you that faithful and wise servant? Every believer in Christ, without exception, every believer in Christ, without exception, has been given a set, of, set amount of time, a measure of talent, and treasure, and gifts, and resources to do what God has asked you to do. I read the story of a man who lived in North Beach, section of San Francisco, North Beach, by the way, has a horrible reputation for sin and carnality. This man lived in North Beach since the 1930s, long before North Beach became littered with bars and clubs and strip joints where every form of perversion and every perverted outlet could be found. You've probably seen cartoons with people wearing sandwich boards with statements like, the end of the world is near. In the 1970s, this man would wear a sandwich board with a gospel message neatly lettered on both sides. Years ago, this precious old man was asked, why do you keep doing this? Why do you keep warning people? Why do you keep giving them the gospel? It's not doing any good. No one, no one is changed by your message. I'll never forget his answer. It was one of the most profound answers I've ever heard. He said, I may not be changing them, but I can't let them change me. Are you changing the world? Or is the world changing you? Is your circumstance, your job, your relationships, your disabilities, your difficulties, is it changing you or are you changing everyone around you? The believer found faithful will experience rich reward. The believer found faithful will find himself or herself in charge ruling. No wonder Jesus says in the book of Revelation chapter 3 verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. What will you be given, faithful servant? You'll be given everything that the father gives to Jesus. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says that God has entrusted Jesus with everything. And Jesus says, I'm going to entrust you with everything that the Father has entrusted to me. But then you have the adversative. This goes in my book, Great Buts of the Bible. But if that evil servant this is the adversative. He's contrasting the faithful servant with the evil servant. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master 
is delaying his coming. He's found some reason not to come and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and in an hour that he's not aware. Think about this. The unexpected nature is going to take both the faithful servant and the unfaithful servant by surprise. The faithful servant is asked, please be faithful to what I've called you to do. But the unfaithful servant has made an excuse. It says in verse 51, and I will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what happens if the servant is wicked? What happens if the servant suggests, my master's not really coming? Or if he's coming, it's not going to be this week or this month or this year. What happens if he begins with the thought, I still have time, and so he gives himself permission To be apathetic, to be indifferent. What happens if he abuses his fellow servant? What happens if he begins to embrace a lifestyle of self-indulgence? He begins to think it through. Could it be that I have time? Could it be that Jesus is delaying his coming? Will some use that delay as an excuse for apathy, then indifference, then laziness, then less than adequate service, which leads ultimately to wickedness? The wicked servant is promised a reward just like the faithful servant. The reward is judgment, and the judgment is severe. In the parable, Jesus uses the term Evil. Look at verse 48. But of that evil servant. The word translated evil is the Greek word kakos. It's an interesting word for so many reasons. It doesn't mean what you might think. It, it doesn't necessarily mean wicked or, or vile or repulsive. In the ancient world, this was a word that was used to describe fruit that had gone rotten or bad. In other words, think about this for just a moment because the fruit starts off unripe and then it becomes ripe, and then it becomes rotten. It was a word that was also used in the ancient world to describe an instrument that was no longer useful for a blade that was broken or a knife that wasn't sharp or some instrument that had lost its value because it's broken. Each and every one of you probably has something that you throw in the trash and you go, oh, that's torn. That's broken. It no longer has any value. It may have once had a value. It may have once had some sort of useful function. Whatever this is, it's something, and listen carefully, that starts off good and useful and then becomes rotten or not helpful and not useful. When I was thinking about this, I, I remembered seeing a picture of Jesse James. Many of you remember him. He was a famous outlaw, and he robbed trains and banks. And in this picture of Jesse James, he looks like an angel. His father was a Baptist minister. He was the son of a preacher man. How did he get so bad? We don't know all the details, but there was a civil war that came upon our nation. His father died. His mother was harassed by Yankee soldiers. Local law enforcement officials accidentally shot Jesse's mother, and she lost her arm. And Jesse stopped being good. 
he became tired of being good. Jesse's father was a man of God. He was a good man and he died anyway. Circumstance, pain, sorrow, bitterness began to invade his life. And it could be that some of you are sick and tired of being good. You're sick and tired of praying. You're sick and tired of reading your Bible. You're sick and tired of of going to church. You're frustrated in your Christian life. The wicked servant got tired and frustrated and waiting for his master. The servant didn't start life bad. He was kakos. Something that started off good and then became bad. His service started as a sacred stewardship and trust. You want to know why that's true? Because the master gave him that trust. Every marriage starts off with trust, doesn't it? Usually if you get a position on the job, it's because you've been entrusted with that position. There was something about you, your skills, that gave you that trust. The master must have thought that he had remarkable administrative skills, loyalty, faithfulness, and obedience to put him in the position that he put him in. But the servant's sense of faithfulness and duty and his sense of expectation that his master would soon return was soon replaced by selfishness and brutality and carnality. You know your walk is weak and your service sour when you begin to berate and belittle and beat the people that God has entrusted to you. In verse 39, in verse 49, look what it says. Look what it says in verse 49. And beginning to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. How did he become so mean? How did it happen? He hurts the people that he's supposed to love. He begins to serve himself instead of the people that God has called him to serve. Would you continue to talk to your wife or your husband or your children or your co-workers in that tone if you knew that Jesus was just about to join you? But the wicked servant says, he's not going to join me. My Lord isn't going to come anytime soon. He's been held up in heavenly traffic. The time isn't right. The time isn't now. And so the servant eats and drinks with drunkards. But there's a picture here for you and me. We don't start off brutal and carnal. But that's what the apathy and the indifference will do. It leads to brutality and it leads to carnality. People who live carnal lives aren't really concerned about the coming of Christ. People who go out and get drunk, get high, find themselves willing to embrace other forms of foolishness and impurity. They don't live their lives for Jesus. They don't live like he could come back at any moment. Let me ask you something. Are you struggling right now with brutality or carnality? There's a cure for it, by the way. Get right with God. Fall in love with Jesus. Wake up and begin to live your life as if Jesus could come right now. The coming of Jesus, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, it says, it says, it says, I'm going to have to turn there because I've just got, I don't normally go blank like that. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we're the children of God and it hasn't been revealed what we shall be, but we know this, that when he is revealed, we're going to be like him for we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in his heart purifies himself. 
It has a way of driving out the carnality and the brutality. The Lord has a severe warning to the evil servant who's brutal and carnal in verses 50 and 51. The Lord Jesus is going to bless and reward those who love him and serve him and look for him. But Jesus will punish those who hate him and reject him. Jesus will punish the wicked. Does that disturb you? Look at the expression and read it for yourself. And he will cut them in two. The Greek phrase is dichotomeo. Dichotomeo. Some of you know the word dichotomy. You're familiar with that term because it means to literally cut in two pieces or in two parts. It was the Greek word that scholars used to describe in the Old Testament the practice of preparing an animal for sacrifice. You would have to cut the animal to pieces. The fact that Jesus assigns the brutal, carnal, hypocrite to a place where the unbeliever should Give all of us pause on TV and radio and popular media. More and more people, they make no effort whatsoever to hide their wickedness, hide their carnality, hide their unbelief. They ridicule Christ and Christians. They are open and honest about their unbelief. They're unrepentant about their brutality and carnality. And Jesus says, one day, one day, you'll get exactly what you deserve. He uses the term weeping and gnashing of teeth. If it disturbs you, it should. This is the same words that he describes elsewhere for people who are in a place of unrepentant punishment. This is the place, wherever this place is, and whatever it means, it me this is a place where you can never turn off the tears. This is a place where you can never turn off the guilt. You can never turn off the pain. You can never turn off the torment. This is the place where hope disappears forever. John MacArthur again writes, Honest unbelievers are just as lost as hypocrites who pretend to have faith. They will go to the same place as the religious phonies they feel superior to and despise, unquote. So the coming of Jesus? Sudden. Certain. J. Wilbur Chapman wrote, quote, it's not the ship in the water, but the water in the ship that sinks it. So it's not the Christian in the world, but the world in the Christian that constitutes danger. Anything that dims my vision of Christ or takes away my taste for Bible study or cramps my prayer life or makes Christian work difficult, it's wrong for me. And I must, as a Christian, turn away from it, unquote. So let me ask you a question. Are you changing the world? Or is the world changing you? William Barclay tells a story to illustrate the dangers of spiritual procrastination. He writes, quote, There's a fable which tells of three apprentice devils who are coming to the earth to finish their apprenticeship. They're talking to Satan, the chief of the devils, about their plan to tempt and ruin men. The first said, I will tell them there is no God. Satan said, that won't delude many, but they know there's a God. The second said, I'll tell them there is no hell. Satan answered, you're not going to deceive very many people that way either. Men know there's a hell for sin. The third said, I'll tell them there is no hurry. Go, said Satan, and you will ruin men by the thousands. The most dangerous delusion is that there's plenty of time. 
you can put it off. That you can pretend that it's not a problem. The most dangerous delusion of all is to think that you have plenty of time left. Be alert. Be ready. Be faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for that person and he knows who he is and she knows who she is. They've grown apathetic and indifferent. Maybe even brutal and carnal. Lord, I pray for that person who knows that if ever there was a time to be different, it needs to be now. And so, Lord, I pray, I pray, I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would do only what you can do. Lord, I know that if I say something, someone a little more clever than me can say something else. So, Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will convict the unbeliever that he or she would come into a right relationship with you, that they would trust Jesus. And I pray for that Christian who's grown cold, apathetic and indifferent, maybe even rude and caustic, maybe even carnal and wicked. They started off good, but something's gone terribly wrong. Something's gone terribly bad. Lord, I pray that even now that they would turn from their sin and that they would turn from you. Lord, I'm not going to embarrass them. You know who they are and you know what they need to do. Lord, I pray even now, even now, that they would in their heart pray this prayer, Heavenly Father, I need to be different. I need my life to be different. I need the apathy and the indifference to grow into a red hot desire to love you and serve you. Lord, cause me to turn from my selfishness, my carnality and brutality and wickedness. That instead of hurting people, I would help them. Instead of taking advantage of them, I would look for ways to support them. Instead of complaining all of the time about them, Lord, that I would find a way to pray for them. And so, Lord, change me, change me. Create in me a new heart. Renew a right spirit within me and cause me to be alert and be ready and be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.